It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. When it first began, the coronavirus was perceived as the Tom Hanks illness that infected people who travel. But as weeks went on, it became clear the disease was disproportionately affecting communities of color. Emergency medicine physician Tom Fisher predicted this. He says he's seen the same pattern with other illnesses. When you have a society where the worst possible health outcomes settle within the same racial caste over and over again, you have to expect that the coronavirus would be no different. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve the greatest challenges of our time. Today's discussion was co-produced by the Institute's Health Innovators Fellowship and the Health Medicine and Society Program. So far, COVID-19 has claimed the lives of more than 100,000 people in the U.S. The numbers show black and brown people are 3.5 times more likely to die of the virus than white people. The pandemic is exposing long-standing inequities and injustices that people of color experience within the country's healthcare system. Even when controlling for factors like lack of access to affordable insurance and healthy food, death rates for many conditions are still higher. That's because racism is embedded in the system, says Regan McDonald-Mosley. She's chief medical officer of Planned Parenthood in Maryland. She joins Thomas Fisher, who's based at the University of Chicago, for a conversation about American racism through the lens of COVID-19. Maria Enahosa, who produces and anchors NPR's Latino USA, moderates the conversation. Enahosa also anchors the political podcast In the Thick. Here's Enahosa. Here I am um, in one of the epicenters, slowly declining, uh, right here from Harlem, USA, from my bedroom to you. Um, and I'm really honored to be having this conversation today in particular. I want to do this first because it's the way I start our politics podcast. And we just want to do a check-in with you. So Regan, today's a special day. I think your boy just graduated from eighth grade. Yes, this morning. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so a lot of feelings, but how are you doing with, you know, we're, we were still doing the catch-up of living in COVID. And for those of us who are people of color, really acknowledging and understanding the importance of taking over the narrative that COVID is a POC issue when there is an uprising around violence against POC, the death of George Floyd. So how are you doing? Um, you know, it's a tumultuous time for everyone right now, and especially for people of color in the United States. Um, I would say right now, you know, I have a lot of mixed feelings, right? Uh, because of what's going on, both with the coronavirus and the state of social injustice around the, the country. But I'm also super hopeful because I feel like for the first time right now, eyes are opening, right? Those of us who've been working in this space have been well aware of the consequences of racism, both in the healthcare system and outside of the healthcare system for a long time. But now it feels like our neighbors for whom maybe that wasn't their central issue are waking up to this reality. Dr. Tom, how you doing? You know, I'm good. First of all, um, I'm really happy to be here with Reagan because um, Aspen and its forum have introduced me to some of the smartest and most curious people. Um, and we've begun to talk about issues and bringing them to you know, these central conversations that we previously had, had not. I mean, there's been a conversation around race and healthcare for about 50 years. 
and um, there's reams published. We've had conversations and IOM reports that have been um, brought to the fore, and we've done very little about it. And in fact, we've gone backwards on, uh, on a lot of measures. What's interesting about COVID is in the setting of social distancing, being in the emergency department is the only place where I feel sort of normal. It's the only place where I have social interactions with people, even though we're masked and PPE'd, but interactions that seem familiar to the time before. The rest of society doesn't look familiar at all. And in some ways it makes me feel more optimistic, particularly the protests um, look very different than they have in the past. We have people in all 50 states um, standing up against police brutality. Um, we've never seen that before. I was out at the protest during the Laquan McDonald um, situation in Chicago when a police officer um, murdered a young man and it was, and the video was suppressed for many years. Those protests were mostly black folks. These protests are mostly white folks. That gives me a level of optimism that I haven't seen before. And so even though things feel very different and uncomfortable in our daily lives because of a number of different reasons, um, there's a lot of opportunity to look at silver linings and identify how we um, can build on this opportunity to a new future. I think that's the hardest part for me in terms of the both of you is that, because I'm a little bit older than the both of you. So what's hard is to realize, like many of us are prepared to struggle to take steps forward, but it's very difficult to feel like you're moving backwards. And I think in many ways we have felt that way, certainly in terms of, of COVID. So let's stay with that for a moment. Um, because I want to ask the both of you, when did you know, when were you clear that COVID was definitely a POC, a people of color story and issue? And I kind of go back to the time when I was battling COVID. I was sick in bed here and I was listening to, this is early, so this is um, end of March, and I was listening to Governor Cuomo here, and no one was talking about the breakdown around race. Uh, I remember Charles Blow from the New York Times. So when did you both realize, or did you know from way ahead that this was what was gonna happen? Who wants to go first? I can start. I mean, again, for, for those of us who've been sort of thinking about, teaching about and writing about racism and how it impacts people of color, um, we were not surprised. In fact, when people were saying, oh, this is the great equalizer, it does not discriminate, everyone's at risk. Um, we knew from the very beginning of this outbreak in our nation that people of color would be disproportionately impacted, right? Because the reality is, is that racism is inherently built into all of our institutions, including the healthcare institutions, um, including, you know, where people live, where they get their food, things that impact their health, um, transportation. So we knew from the very beginning of this, but it took a while for people to start reporting the data about this. Um, I myself have been, you know, thinking about these issues for a long time and it became it transcended for me from a professional interest to a personal one, unfortunately, three years ago, um, when a dear friend of mine, Dr. Shalon Irving, died three weeks after having her first child. Um, Shalon's death garnered a lot of attention because of who she was in society. She was a highly educated Black woman who worked for the CDC doing health equity work. And her death struck so many people, especially Black women, as they thought, you know, if this could happen to her, it could happen to any of us, right? 
Um, and for those people in the public health and healthcare system space who read about Shalon's death, it forced them to confront the fact that black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy than white women. And this difference exists even after controlling for things that we usually think of as protective education, income, et cetera. And there've been many activists and providers who've been working in the reproductive justice space and maternal health space, especially, um, namely Joya Career Perry, who's the founder of the National Birth Equity Collaborative, who've been diligently working to garner attention and traction on this matter and impact policies and operational changes that could reduce the numbers of black women that are needlessly dying, right? So in this moment right now, where our nation, we're finally reckoning with the insidious role that racism has played in our institutions and communities, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit frustrating, right? Because we have known that racism had these impacts for a long time. And while we were able to ignore the seven to 800 um, women who died from childbirth every year, it's really hard to ignore 110,000 people who've died from the coronavirus. Uh, in my opinion, black women were the canary in the coal mine, right? And if we had been yeah. paying attention all along, um, perhaps we would not be in this place where so many people have needlessly died and disproportionately people of color. It, it's very interesting that you would use that terrible analogy about um, canaries in the coal mile be, mine, because as journalists of color and of conscience, I say that we are reporting about, we're witnessing the canaries dying. And as journalists, we're saying, we're trying to draw attention to this story. This is important. And our editors, most of whom this is, you know, the experience of the mainstream news media, many editors are saying, can you just calm down? Don't get so excited. Calm down. Don't take it so personally. And I guess that's um, actually, it's important to take things personally. And Tom, I want to ask you about what Reagan just mentioned, which is this notion of racism being embedded in healthcare. And these reports that people now are reading, which is that um, white doctors and nurses believe that black folk, brown folk, we don't feel pain. We're used to it. And I'm thinking about what Reagan was just mentioning in the sense of, you know, maternal mortality. And so maybe we're just not taken as seriously when we're talking about our pain when we are women of color. But I'm thinking about for you, let's bring it back to the issue of COVID and how you, when you understood, or did you from the beginning, that it was gonna be a POC story? Yeah, I mean, why would this be any different? Everywhere we find, um, everywhere in healthcare we find black folks and brown folks have worse outcomes and worse healthcare in the same healthcare settings. And so one should expect this to hold form. There wouldn't be any reason why it would be different. And, I first became aware of COVID coming in, I think it was New Year's Eve, because of um, media in Europe began notifying on Twitter that there was a new virus coming. And I pay close attention to those things because in the emergency department, we see an unfiltered section of society. And so when it shows up, it's going to walk into my emergency department without announcing, oh, this is, a, this is Ebola, this is smallpox, this is, um, this is the coronavirus. And so... At that time, I began following it, and I had suspicions that, you know, it, when a pandemic comes to Chicago, it may not be this, but this is how it starts. This is what it looks like, and it began building steam. While I knew that it would first be travelers, you know, I also take care of people on the south side of Chicago, you know, a black community that's very old, that's 
you know, built from folks who traveled up from the South during the great train migration, fleeing, um, fleeing terrorism, who birthed Mahalia Jackson and Richard Wright and Barack Obama, and who, you know, have experienced the short and the stick for decades. Mm -hmm. And in my community, you know, we have a high rate of disability. So in Washington Park, 15% of folks are disabled compared to 4% in the loop. And Black mothers in Woodlawn, which is right nearby, give birth to low birth weight babies three and a half percent of the time compared to just one percent of the time in Lincoln Park. Um, in Inglewood, which is a neighborhood that is racked with handgun violence, you see 50, the life expectancy is 59 years compared to over 80 in the Gold Coast. And 59 years is lower than what you'll see in Iraq or North Korea. And so when you have a society where the worst possible health outcomes settle within the same racial caste over and over again, you have to expect that the coronavirus would be no different. Um, when we saw HIV begin with um, well-off, in particular, white men, now it has become a disease mainly of women of color and men of color. Um, over time, um, the load that comes from where we live, learn, work, and play takes its health toll. And they come into my emergency department and, and Reagan's clinic. And so by the time the news had picked it up, we'd been seeing it for months. And in fact, um, it would be amazing if that turned out to be not the case. I, I really wish now as a journalist, I wish that physicians of color like you had been on the cable news channels giving us that context so that we could understand. Because I think a lot of people thought, oh, this is the Tom Hanks illness. Mm -hmm. You know, you get it if you are traveling around the world. But the both of you clearly understood, and that's because you're in the healthcare field and you know it, you, you understood it uh, deeply. Tom, I want you, before throwing it back to Reagan, I yeah. want you to talk about when we were prepping for this conversation, you were really clear about wanting the people who are listening to this conversation, who are clearly interested and want to learn more and do a little bit of the work around the issue of racism. You said you want them to understand that you are not you, those of you who are listening and watching, you're not an outsider. You're not just an observer. You're not helpless. That yes, Reagan and Tom are, they're treating patients. They're, they're doing the work of, deconstructing racism on their daily interactions. But you, Tom, are saying that everybody, in fact, in this conversation around racism and COVID, we all have a role to play. So what people are saying, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I mean, we could spend an hour just on this topic because we're all part of the same system of care. Uh, you know, I remember early on in the coronavirus pandemic, I took care of a 40 something year old woman who was who had been sick for a week. She had been coughing and febrile and, you know, wasn't able to tolerate pee, um, much by mouth and was a little bit dehydrated. And she came into the emergency department um, with the appearance that she'd been working on making sure she looked a certain way all day. She had a full face of makeup. Her hair was done. She had on clean clothes and high heeled shoes. And this despite the fact that she'd been in bed for a week because she knew coming in the healthcare setting, she would be perceived a certain way. And she wanted to be sure that she would get the best possible care um, despite the fact that she was a part of what is generally the undesirable class. She didn't have the best insurance and she was a black woman. 
in our conversation, she shared a lot of detail about how she couldn't have gotten the virus because she was doing everything right. She was trying to self-quarantine. Although she had to work, she was taking precautions. And there's a, some, to some extent, what she was reflecting is this notion that we've applied personal responsibility to all your health outcomes and ignored the fact that she's a part of a system. She couldn't self, she couldn't quarantine at home because she had to work. She lived in a multi-generational home. And so even if she didn't have to work, somebody in the house was working. We tend to home blameless the systems that we've all constructed and instead apply all of the responsibility to an individual to eat right, to, to, to follow the right precautions, to, to use condoms, to not smoke. And we ignore the fact that the system creates situations where in order to do the right thing for some people, they have to go against the system at all times. They have to avoid all of the winds that blow them into a certain direction. And other people, as long as they go along with the winds that are blowing, they end up with the best possible health outcomes. And so for people on this call, and particularly folks who are a part of the ASMA, they're shaping those systems. They are the ones who are doing the hiring and firing. Those are the ones who are upholding or dismantling systems of advantage and disadvantage. These are the folks who have the potential to do more than just simply um, create gestures and recognize new um, recognize Black Lives Matters now after it's been a part of society for five years, but actually say, well, what are the fundamental changes we have to create within our organization so that people like physicians who want to do the right thing for the right people do not have to actually go against systems of care, but are following systems of care that create just outcomes. Um, that's everybody. That's not, the, that's not Black folks, that's everybody. You know, there's this notion, um, I don't remember where I saw it recently, but it was around the issue of race and somebody said, well, you know, you, 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 you just made bad choices. And then the person says to the white person, the thing is, you only had good choices to make. Yeah. You only had good choices to make. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. The Aspen Ideas Festival is back, and it's free and all digital. Beginning June 28, the festival will host a robust daily lineup of speakers streaming online at aspenideas.org. Leaders and thinkers like Anna DeVere Smith, Anthony Fauci, Michael Eric Dyson, Krista Tippett, and many others will share fresh thinking about a range of topics, including the present juncture our society is in. The talks will be held across five days starting June 28th. Go to aspenideas.org to sign up for updates and reminders. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Maria Enahosa. Reagan, so can you kind of, from your perspective, this notion of we all have a role to play here? What, and and we, we also talked on this panel in prep, we were like, we don't want to come away from this. Like, here are the 10 things that you should do so that you can feel like, oh my God, I did it. It's, it's more intense than that. So what, what does this bring up for you, Reagan? Yeah, I mean, I think what, what I want to make sure that the folks listening take away from this is a, is a bit of an understanding of what we're talking about when we're talking about the ways that racism impacts health outcomes, right? Um, so very briefly, uh, I want to highlight three ways that racism impacts health outcomes. 
there's been a lot written and said about social determinants of health, right? Those are the things outside of the structures and the walls of our healthcare institution that impact uh, people's health, right? So where they live, what they have access to in terms of food, healthy food options, is there green space for them to exercise? Can they, do they have health insurance? Do they have access to transportation, right? There's a lot that's been said about how those social determinants of health impact people's health outcomes and is impacting the COVID outcomes. But there isn't as much said about why and how those things, if you look at sort of the root cause of those things, it's all about racism and policies that have been put in place, redlining that have caused segregation in our communities, highways that have been put in place to completely separate black and white communities, how our education system is funded. All of those things are deliberate policies that have been put in place that are causing worse outcomes, right? So I think that's really important to mention. In addition to those structural determinants of health that are caused by racist policies, there's differential treatment from the medical community. And this is also playing itself out in COVID. There was an early study in uh, April, I believe, in seven states that showed that when white people and black people went to the emergency room with the same symptoms, cough, whatever, things related to COVID-19, black people were six times less likely to be offered a test. Same symptoms, same places, same states six times less likely to be offered a test, right? And that has downstream effects because those people go back to their communities without knowing whether or not they have the virus um, and they can't make educated decisions about whether or not to isolate themselves. They may not have the ability to not go to work, right? Without that note from their doctor saying you had a COVID test or you have COVID, right? So differential treatment by the healthcare system, a lot of that is based on um, erroneous ideologies that race is biological. Race is not biological. It is a social construct. It is real and there are biological impacts, but race itself is not biological. And I think that's really important for people to understand. And then this concept that is being well studied now and written about, but not as well known, called allostatic load or weathering, which is really just the idea that, you know, we as human beings are um, evolutionary design, evolutionarily designed to have a flight or flight response, right? Where we're being chased by a bear, our cortisol goes up, and that's good in that moment. It will help us, you know, outrun the bear. Um, but it is not healthy or normal to have an elevated cortisol level at all times, sort of chronically. But that is the experience of black and brown people walking through our world that we're sort of navigating these situations that constantly make us have elevated cortisol hormone levels, whether that's just going to the grocery store and being followed, because I have my bags with me, I'm trying to be a good environmentalist, um, but someone is worried that I'm going to be stealing groceries um, or, you know, driving around and being worried about the cops pulling me over and that could lead to loss of life, right? Um, so this constant chronic elevated cortisol level can lead to dysregulation of hormones, damage to DNA and cause premature aging and uh, decreased ability to fight disease, right? So this is what we're talking about, the ways that racism shows up and impacts health outcomes from sexual determinants of health, unfair treatment by the healthcare system rooted in the erroneous ideology that race is biological, and then just the chronic stress of navigating the world in a brown or black body. That, that is what's happening. So one of the things that you all do is that you change the narrative, right? You have assumed power. Um, you are medical doctors. You, are, you, you did all that hard work. Um, but I think that um, there's a way in which we can all own our power. As people of color, this is really important. I think that's part of the conversation that we're engaging with now. I'm gonna give you an example right here in Harlem. So for example, 
um, last week during the midst of the uprising, you know, I would post on my Twitter, I was like, how many of you, i.e. white people, are hearing the sound of helicopters overhead in your communities? Because we're hearing that in Harlem for every hours. Day. <laughs> right, every day, <laughs> for hours. Um, one of the things that I do is I recognize my privilege as a, as a Latina, Mexican, immigrant-born U.S. citizen, right? Um, so in the park here in, in front of my home in Harlem, I will engage with the police when they are driving through the park with their lights on at 15 miles an hour when nothing is happening, I will stop them. And I will say, you need to answer me. Why are you doing this? Would you like to have a police car driving around in your park at 15 miles an hour at seven o'clock in the morning with the lights on? So I'm saying that because I use my power and I'm, you know, I would feel differently about my husband who is a black man with an accent. I guess what I'm asking you, Tom, is there is a way in which you're saying we all have responsibility. This is one thing I'm sharing. I'm just like, I am speaking to police officers all the time. Like, hey, what's up? There is other ways in which we can take this moment of COVID, pandemic, uprising, people of color, racism, and engaging on our own. So what would you, what does that look like? You know, is it on the streets? Is it in the healthcare system? What does it look like for you when, when you're thinking about this? What well, is it? You know, like? I think it's all of the above. I think that so long as we have a system that is designed to harm, every individual action that sends somebody a life draft or changes their opportunity for healthcare or saves them from a bad situation is worth doing and must be done. Um, and I think that, you know, to build on what Reagan described, all of these different variables require a totally different way of conceptualizing our healthcare system. It's not simply that we can optimize around outcomes because our system is optimized and these are the outcomes. We actually need to think about a fundamentally different sort of system that has a foundation that is not our current foundation. You, you know, I've been a doctor for about 20 years now. And in that time, I've seen HIV go from a death sentence to a chronic disease. I've seen hepatitis C cured. I've seen, um, I've seen cervical cancer on the verge of cure with a new vaccine. I've seen EMRs make things more efficient. Like things have changed because we're working on optimizing the system. But those aren't the solutions that are gonna change that disability rate in Washington Park from 15% to 3%. Right now, we often see profit and people in opposition in the setting of healthcare. We're doing the right thing for, this, for a person also loses an organization money. So long as that is in conflict, we elevate capital over humanity and that can never be the case in the setting of healthcare. We are not producing shoes we're saving people's lives. And so that fundamental reconceptualization is what's required in order for us to get to a place where those issues that Reagan describes are no longer the issues. And that is, that is where we all play a part. That's where we march in the streets and say, no, we can't just pretend to improve our EMRs and that's gonna solve our health disparities when we have a setting that is grinding people into a pulp every day, where we have to institute VIP care to get people around these systems that harm them, and where we each have a responsibility right now to try to save folks' lives, we get tired. Like it's, It creates a cognitive dissonance within providers where every day they see people falling through the cracks that we can't save every day. 
And we need a new system in order to make it safer for both the providers, but also most importantly, our patients. So one of the things that we talked about was, um, you know, cause I, I'm a journalist. So when I get frustrated and I get worried, um, you know, what can I do? So as a journalist, I can do more intense reporting. Um, and one of the things that um, we discussed was how we wanted to try to create a, we want people to understand to, that they need to see themselves and the people who are battling, for example, COVID or police brutality, but actually try to do it. So I was obsessed with, as I was hearing here in New York City, you know, it's black and Latino men who are dying at extraordinary proportions vis-a-vis -vis their population rates. And I was like, but nobody is, nobody is talking about these men. Who are they? Who are they? And so I did the hard work of finally getting a doctor inside Bellevue to describe. And she said, look, if I look at the roster of the people who are in the ICU right now, the majority of the names are clearly Latino Spanish surnames, the majority, over 50%. And she said, people don't imagine that the guy working construction, the guy delivering on his bicycle, the pizza, or the guy who's you know, cleaning the landscaping will end up in the ICU because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So I wonder about that notion of seeing it, making it human, making it real. And how, I mean, I try to do that as a journalist. How can you do that as medical doctors and as, you know, really your fellows now as part, part of the Aspen Institute uh, and, and to bring that sense of humanity? Yeah, I think, you know, I had the same experience where a colleague from New York of mine, as we were sort of checking in with each other over the last few months, sent me a text saying, this is overwhelming. You know, we have 15 ventilators in our ICU and 12 of them are occupied by people of color. And I think the reality is that people can't unsee that, right? Like people on the front lines like Tom and those in the ICUs, those on the medical floors, they are seeing the preponderance of how this is impacting people of color. Um, and my hope, again, is that that will stay with them and that will force us to really look at these systems and really think about what we have to do differently, right? Um, so although I know I laid sort of a really heavy foundation in thinking about all the ways that racism is impacting the healthcare system, I also want to point out that this is actually good news, right? Because previously we were walking around thinking like there's some magical thing in our biology or in our DNA that made us black and then therefore, or made us Latinx and therefore made us have these bad health outcomes. And that would be terrible if that were the case, right? Because we can't fix that. I woke up black today, I'm gonna wake up black tomorrow. My children are black, mm -hmm. black. like that, that, is, <laughs> that is my reality. We can't change that. But what we can change are all of the things and the systems that are in place that are making these outcomes bad, right? Like we can change the world. We can change our healthcare system so that when two people come in with the same symptoms that they're treated the same and have the same likelihood of getting a test. We can change that they have the same likelihood of getting admitted to the high level service. We can change you know, who gets a ventilator. We can change those things. And I think the fact that our um, men and women right on the front lines of the healthcare system are seeing this, it's tangible. It is imprinted in their brains. I think this is going to force us to really face this and change our systems in a very different way um, than the really sort of subtle outcomes that were happening that we really had to look for before. But now it's overt and obvious and right in front of us. I love what you said, Reagan, in terms of have it stay with you, those images, have it stay with you. 
All right, so we have some questions. I'm going to read a few because I actually like when I'm doing a panel, I actually like to get a few questions and then so that people can get their questions asked and then we can just respond, you can respond to them. So to what extent do you think there is racism driving the decisions in the moment of who is tested and treated in terms of admissions, respirator intubation, resuscitation? Um, What immediate steps can change this? Um, Another question, how should this moment target tobacco, alcohol, fast food companies that focus on black folks um, and contribute to the underlying conditions, making people vulnerable to COVID. Of course, also obesity is one of the worst things that you you can have if you are battling COVID. Um, And we know that obesity is an issue in POC communities. What would a healthcare system that has been reconstructed to eliminate racism look like? I love that. Um, Kathleen wants to know, Reagan, a little bit more about race being a social construct. Um, Let's take those and then we'll come back to a few more questions. I know I threw a lot at you, but maybe, Tom, you want to... Let me start with the first one, because I think there's a lot of energy put into um, the role of implicit bias and implicit bias training in improving healthcare and healthcare outcomes. And I think that it is a player in the physician-patient relationship, but not the lead driver. When you look at the people who get tested, so much of it has to do with things that have happened way before they enter that physician-patient relationship. Most settings at the beginning of the epidemic had only a handful of tests available, and they were being allocated to special people who had a particular relationship with those that had resources, those that were affiliated with a clinic or medical center that had a ton of resources, Um, or were able to use political and social capital in order to gain access to those resources. Those are people who, like, those decisions were being made in hiring decisions, you know, that provided people access to good insurance and getting access to university medical centers as opposed to clinics that might not have those same resources. These are about the way we've structured society that even got you to the point where you had the potential to get a test. Once you're in the setting of a test, there were a lot of rules that were being put in place to allocate those. Some of those that had been put in place already, but others were, are you sick enough to be admitted? Right? If you were sick enough to be admitted at the beginning, you were getting a test. If you were not sick enough to get admitted, it didn't matter who you were, there weren't tests available unless you had one of those back doors. I am skeptical of educational interventions to unravel systemic issues whether the education is on the individual, the leadership structure, or anywhere in between, um, it puts the onus again on an individual to work against the system rather than reshaping the system in order to create one that's more equitable and safe. And so, sure, implicit bias training is great because it makes individuals Mm. more aware of who they are and more effective in their ability to deliver care but that remains powerless if the entire system is structured to force you into a decision pathway that is contrary to what your own biases and awareness may, may imply. Okay, Reagan, um, there, were, there were a lot of questions there, but which one yeah. would you like to tackle? Go ahead. So I think I'd like to quickly circle back to the question about race as a social construct. And the reason why is I feel like we can't get to that, that last question, which was what would a healthcare system look like without racism until people wrap their minds around this. And I also want to recognize that we, especially those of us who are physicians or work in the healthcare space, it has been ingrained in us and in our training that race is biological. And guess what? That is completely wrong. So race is real. 
but it is not biological. It is not genetic. There's as much genetic diversity between races as there are within races. Um, and we don't have enough time to, to properly go into it. So I suggest that people who, for whom this is, you know, causing cognitive dissonance, and I recognize that there are probably many of you in the audience, you know, read about it. Because um, this is a really hard thing to sort of wrap our brains around because we live in a highly racialized society that has made us believe that race is biological, but it in fact isn't. Um, race is, you know, about um, culture and it's about, um, in sense, how people, uh, what the color of their skin is and what the texture of their hair is, but those things are not rooted in biology and genetics. Um, but the impacts of race are completely real in as much as we spoke about in terms of allosthetic load and this concept of weathering and premature aging. Um, but it's really important that the medical system really wraps their mind around this. So for example, even in the context of COVID, The Lancet um, published an article last month looking at autopsy results from the lungs and um, hearts of patients in New Orleans. And the title of the, um, of the article uh, had African-Americans in it. So it was like pulmonary and cardiac pathology in African-American patients. Um, and the article sort of intimated that there's something different about the lungs and the heart structure of black people, which is, which is completely not based in um, biology. And this is a recent... This is last month. Okay. And, and the problem with this, again, is it allows us to blame black people for this increased risk of dying because of COVID. And, you know, the article doesn't say so much, but it says maybe there's something about the biology of black people that caused this, right? So I think until we reckon with this reality, we will not get to that, that last picture, which is sort of what would a healthcare system look like without racism? And the, the answer to that, frankly, is just that where people have equal access to care and that the outcomes are the same um, and are not dependent on someone's race. You know, I think I just to add to that, there's so much energy and effort in the healthcare system to look under the skin, into a cell, into a molecule to find the answer, when the answers are obvious and around us in society. And that is a much more challenging um, problem to solve. And so we look away. Also, because we as doctors and as individuals are implicated in the construction of our society, whereas we're not implicated in what's in that cell or what's in that molecule. One of the things I saw related to COVID was, oh, vitamin D must be a driver for this. Well, I've heard vitamin D as a driver for all things, the cancer disparities, um, the HIV disparities. Now, I mean the, the lack of vitamin D. The lack of vitamin D, which brown people will have less of because it's partially created by our exposure to sun. And so melanin is um, protective against some things and also limits the, uh, the production of vitamin D. And when we have obvious answers around us and we're continuing to look at the molecular level or as Reagan said, construct race out of, um, out of thin air as opposed to focus on what is actually the driver, which is racism, it, it lets us all off the hook rather than forcing us as physicians to be engaged in our societal challenges that lead people into our care and also hold, create um, situations where we're unable to solve their, their issues. Well, so thank you for all of that brilliance. Um, you know, my only critique of Aspen is that our panels are too short all the time. Love everything, but I always feel like, oh, wait, I need to do another hour. We have to wrap now. Um, so I want to say thank you to Dr. Thomas Fisher, who is based in Chicago at the University of Chicago Emergency Medical Doctor, and Dr. Reagan McDonald Mosley, who is based um, in Baltimore, um, and you're practicing still OBGYN, correct? Correct. 
I just want to leave it with this. Um, so I'm, I'm a survivor of COVID. And um, one of the things that um, I think we don't really, and I didn't get the test, I only got the antibody test, but I, I would just like to say that there is a whole psychological impact that we're also feeling um, because of this pandemic as people of color who are surviving it and fighting it. And um, we talked a lot about the physical, we talked a lot about the structural. Um, I want you to think also all of you about the mental, psychological, emotional, and even spiritual aspect to all of this. Uh, one of the things that I've been doing a lot is meditating and listening to meditation teachers of color. It's a very different field of medicine, but it's something that I think um, can help us all. So thank you everyone for being a part of this. Thomas Fisher practices emergency medicine at the University of Chicago. He served as a White House Fellow at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where he led the development of the Action Plan for Reducing Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities. Regan McDonald Mosley co-directs Dr. Shallon's Maternal Action Project, a nonprofit dedicated to supporting black people through pregnancy and childbirth. Maria Inahosa created Futuro Media, an independent nonprofit that produces journalism around the diversity of the American experience. They spoke on June 10th as part of the COVID-19 Healthcare at an Inflection Point webinar series, co-presented by the Aspen Institute's Health Innovators Fellowship and the Health Medicine and Society Program. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.